0: So 2,500 years ago, the Bodhisattva, the being who was to become the Buddha was born in India, lived in this luxurious regal palace of his father for 29 years, understood that this wasn't all that life had to offer, wandered off. And took up the spiritual practices of his day, which involved uh, tremendous asceticism. Just uh, living very simply out in the open with very little uh, clothing, very little food, very little companionship, and no social life at all, and was trying to beat his mind into submission. That was the uh, understood path to liberation and after six years of this very torturous ascetic practice he was pretty emaciated and just about at the point of death and he thought geez you know whatever torturous practices anyone could ever undertake and whatever pain involved in any spiritual discipline I have surely done that and yet my mind is not free so he said maybe there's another way and a memory came to his mind and it was a memory of a time when he was a young boy and he was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree watching his father, the king, ritually plow a field for a bountiful harvest. And while he was just sitting in the cool shade of the tree, kind of watching his father, his mind spontaneously uh, attained an exalted state of absorption or collectedness of mind where he was neither disengaged from what was going on, neither was he kind of fascinated and kind of excited by it. But his mind came to a place of extraordinary balance. And out of that balance of the mind, the mind just coalesced around stillness. And his mind just entered an exalted state of tranquility, absorption, uh, seclusion from distraction and what causes pain in our life. And he remembered this time when he was a young boy and he thought, well, maybe this is the way to practice. Maybe the way of Just finding a nice, balanced, relaxed, but attentive way of practice is the way to liberate the mind. And with that as a possibility, he then undertook practice in that way, looking to balance his mind from a place of practicing with a balanced mind. And it didn't take him too long after that until he did realize the truth and realized the truth of uh, the liberated mind and how to liberate the mind. When he then began to teach to some of his fellow ascetics what he had realized through this balanced approach to a balanced mind, he called his teaching the middle way, the way in the middle, the way between the extreme of the regal indulgence in sensual pleasures that he'd enjoyed for 29 years, between that on one extreme and the ascetic discipline of pain on the other end of the extreme. And what he taught is right in the middle. And we often hear the teachings of the Buddha referred to as the middle path. It is the path between extremes. The path between reactivity and apathy, if you will. Where we are connected to and engaged in but we're not indulging in and neither are we pushing away from anything. We're right in the middle between attachment to what is pleasant and pushing away what is unpleasant. And when the mind finds this place of balance, There's a natural ease in the (coughs) mind, an ease of being with the way things are. This is what equanimity is. It is the midpoint between the extremes. What does that mean for us, practically speaking? Well, you know, we live in a time when the degradation of the earth's environment is apparent and it's well documented and it has become uh, a topic around which some of us feel a lot of anxiety and a lot of Concern and a lot of uh, well, hopelessness. Because when you consider the magnitude of what's going on on the face of the earth environmentally, sheesh, it's it's not difficult to feel overwhelmed. But that would be an a reaction on one end of the str- extreme. One end of the spectrum. On the other hand, there are those among us who are environmental advocates, whether they belong to the Monkey Wrench gang (laughs) or Earth First or whatever, and sometimes go to the other extreme where anything to stop any kind of uh, industrial progress on the face of the earth is their tactic. Well, this is also an extreme. Or maybe we just feel overwhelmed and say, what the heck, what, what can I do about it? You know, it's like one person, there's six billion of us on the face of the earth. If I, if I recycle my plastic bag, so what? I mean, let's face it. Okay, how do we, how do we handle that kind of information staying engaged with, this is the way it is. This, this is the way it is on the face of the earth. How do we do that and find a way of responding with our wisdom, our awareness, our wisdom, our compassion in a way that is neither feeling disempowered, cynical, or omnipotent? That's the challenge. In my own life, I find when I'm feeling particularly kind of bogged down with, God, this is pretty ominous, I remind myself to go plant some of the trees in our nursery that are waiting to be planted. Because the simple act of taking a plant, a tree, and digging the hole and putting it in the ground and nurturing it and getting the water to it when it needs it and fertilizing it when it needs it and pruning it when it needs it, especially keeping the weeds off it when it needs it so that it can grow, you really begin to appreciate how much it takes to keep even a single tree alive and growing and healthy. And it is something that each one of us can do and in the doing of it, We feel empowered. We feel uh, like we're participating. We are actually addressing uh, an immediate suffering within ourselves and for others on the face of the earth. And we learn something, that my sense of well-being is nurtured by simple acts of wise compassion. And out of that sense of well-being, there is a reservoir for greater acts of wise compassion, addressing other forms of suffering on the face of the earth. Well, as Mother Teresa used to say, I'm not a social worker. I'm not trying to solve the problem of homeless people dying on the streets. I'm just trying to care for someone as they're about to die today. Problems exist, but each one of us can address them in our own uh, very simple, very human, but very powerful way. If we have a mind that is in the middle, that's not feeling overwhelmed, not feeling reactive, not feeling cynical, but able to engage with and respond to the conditions of our life. This is the value. This is the benefit of having a balanced mind. But the middle path is not easy to find. We live in a society where the uh, civic and political and religious discourse is shrill and polarizing. And it is often spoken of in terms of us versus them. And that is about as far away from a balanced, equanimous mind as you can get. And yet that's what we hear, that's what we read, that's what we get coming at us through not just the mainstream media, but through our own gossip and our own, you know, chit chat and whatever it is, however we get information about the world and about others in it. And with that amount of conditioning, with that amount of this is what's allowed in our society, this is what's expected, this is what works, this is what's effective in our culture, in our society, we can't help but be deeply conditioned by that and being trained to do the same. Ah. Okay. So now we live in this shrill, polarized uh, society and culture, and we're trying to develop a mind that is equanimous and responsive somewhere in the middle. Good luck. This is, the, this is the challenge we face. This is, this is the, the, the place that we willingly put ourselves. I want to be awake. I want to see what's going on in this thing called my life. Oh, this is what I see. And yet, I also know that when someone speaks to me from one of the shrill polarized ends of the spectrum, I don't hear what they're saying. I I hear the tone, I hear the volume, I hear the attachment, I hear the insistence, but there's nothing subtle about that. And it excludes 50% of six billion. Huh, okay. It's not easy finding uh, the middle path in our life. It's also not easy finding the middle path in our spiritual practice. These retreats, and most of you have been on retreats, they're, they're pretty uniform, they're pretty familiar. You know, you come, they're silent, sit and walk, you get some talks, you get some instructions, you talk about your practice a little bit, go home after a few days. Has anything changed? We just fall back into the old habits, the routine of our life, our work, our social life. Does anything ever change? Yes, it does, thankfully. That's why we're back here. OK, but we have a sense of what is the middle path. We, through our practice, we get a sense of, well, this is the middle path. Well, I started practice 30 some years ago, and it was quite by accident. I didn't know I was even going on a retreat. I thought I was going on kind of something like a kind of a holiday tour. I don't know where I got that idea. But I ended up at a th- two-week retreat, set up in the back of the room in torture, trying to get through this two weeks of sitting and walking in silence. I didn't know any Buddhists. I didn't know anybody who meditated. I didn't, know what I, was, I didn't know what I was doing there. But anyway, I was there. And after two weeks, I went back to my life, and it was like everything was the same, but everything was really different, looked very different. Same people, same jobs, same relationships. But nothing was like it was when I left. A year or so later, the retreat center in Massachusetts was bought. They needed help to uh, fix it up and to run it. I volunteered to go on staff. And by the time I got there to be on staff, I'd done two two-week retreats. One of my first days in, on uh, staff there, I was up in the attic uh, insulating the ceiling of uh, some of the dorm rooms with another person on staff who happened to be Rodney Smith, now teacher in Seattle. We were having a discussion about Nibbana, which neither one of us knew anything about, but nevertheless we were having a really animated discussion. And I rem- He reminded me a couple of years ago that I said to him then, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that I will realize the Dharma in this lifetime. I didn't have a clue what I was saying. I was totally uninformed. I had no idea what the path was, but I didn't let that undermine my aspiration, my confident aspiration that I felt with this connection to this path. So I was struggling with my knee pain and struggling with my wandering mind and struggling with what's it all about and while I was on staff at the retreat center, uh, during the three-month course that year, there was a Burmese monk that came. And he was um, visiting his, one of his students in California, R- Rina Sircar, and a Burmese woman. And he came to the meditation center for a week, to teach for a week uh, in the middle of the three-month course. And we were told about him before he came. His name was Tong Pulo Saida. Now, Tong Pulisaydah was a scholarly monk in Burma uh, in his early adult years when he was a new monk. But after a few years, I don't know, maybe when he was in his late 20s, 30s or so, he decided to actually practice what he was teaching. So he got his meditation instruction, wandered off to practice. But as any of you who've been to Asia know, it's really noisy. Just because you're in a monastery doesn't mean it's quiet or noisy. It's um, It's a racket. So he wandered further away from his familiar home monastery to a more remote place. It was still noisy, so he decided to go into a cave. He went into a cave, did his practice for 16 years alone, coming out only to go on his alms round each morning. After he'd been in the cave for 16 years, he knew that his abbot, his preceptor, had passed away and he came out of the cave, went back to the monastery, and found that indeed his preceptor had passed away. He took a year off, so to speak, out of the cave, and took care of uh, the body of his abbot, found another abbot to run the monastery, and after he'd been out a year, he went back into his cave to do his practice, continued doing his practice for another 17 years. Then he came out after he'd been in the cave for 33 years and decided, or started to teach, so he was coming to teach us in, um, in uh, Massachusetts, and, uh, and, and I had done uh, four weeks of retreat <laughs> up to that point. <laughs> and not only had he been alone in this cave for 33 years, he hadn't laid down 50 years. Slept sitting up. Well, no, he didn't. He didn't sleep for 35 years. He only entered exalted states of of tranquility to get his rest. And I thought I knew what the middle path was. When I heard about his idea of the middle path, it moved my idea of the middle path in his direction, substantially. It's not easy for us to know what the middle is in our life, in our practice, in our own mind. Nevertheless, if we don't try, we won't know. We won't discover. And so we try. A large part of our practice is discovering the ends of the spectrum. You know, we try too hard, realize that's not it. We try too little, we realize that's not it. We get too excited, that's not it. We get too languid, that's not it. Somewhere, between the extremes, going from one extreme to the other, we cross the midpoint. Eventually, we begin to recognize it. Oh, this this is the middle, but it's only a brief swing as we're (laughs) heading to the extreme. (laughs) Nevertheless, when we come here, we bring our knowledge, we bring our aspiration, we bring our inspiration, we bring our determination, We bring our encouragement from teachers and friends and partners and others in the community. And then we meet our body and mind. And it is just utterly humbling to really get in touch with our own body and our own mind. And it often doesn't look anything like our aspiration If you can hold the two, if you can hold your aspiration and your immediate experience of this humbling, or I should say, maybe humiliating mind, and keep practicing, that's the middle path. Yes, it's, this is the way it is. You know, let's face it, the mind is uh, kind of all over the shop, and we have this aspiration to be free that's why we practice. And to the extent that we can not get caught in either one of those, not get so inflated and elated about the possibilities that were ungrounded, and not get so stuck in the mud with, oh my aching body and oh my rambling mind, but kind of hold the two together, then we can practice. Then we can practice with a balance of energy and faith and stillness and understanding. Practice is very often just a continual refining of our understanding of what the middle path is. You know, and while it might be initially our refinement from, oh, last retreat was this way, this retreat was that way, well, I'll make an adjustment for the next retreat." Later it becomes, oh, this moment's a little too one way, the next moment's a little too the other way, and we really refine it. And the refinement and the evaluating, the the our ability to see the way it is gets more honest with awareness. It also gets more, qu- it gets quicker. We, we're able to notice when we're off balance much quicker and make an adjustment to to come back on track you know the space shuttle you know that they send off up from florida i think they still do they send it up to arrive at the space station so it takes off and it's about two days or three days whatever it is uh, and the onboard computers have their the you know the program of you know go too many miles, take a left, go a few more, take a right, you know, things like that. Eventually, they get to the space station, right? 98% of the time, the space shuttle is off course. 98% of the time, it's off course. Nevertheless, it still arrives at its destination. Why? Well, when they see that it's off course, they make an adjustment to correct the off courseness to bring it back on course. Of course they overshoot, they realize, oh, off course again, make an adjustment. Our practice is just like that. So expect, if you want to have any expectations about your practice, expect that you're going to be off course 98 percent of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, you're still going to get there. But it's that 98 percent of the time when you're off course that's painful. Huh. Okay. What a way to start. (laughs) So the Buddha taught this this path of the middle, finding the middle between the extremes in our life, in our spiritual practice, in our relationships. What does it mean for us to find the middle path? You know, sometimes we Buddhists talk about the 10,000 joys and sorrows of life. And really we're talking about eight. We're talking about the eight worldly vicissitudes, that we all experience pleasure and pain. We all experience pleasure. We all experience pain. Gain and loss. We all have experienced great abundance in our life, and we also have all experienced a tremendous loss, many losses. We all experience praise and blame, sometimes for the same act. Nevertheless, we all know the taste of praise and we all know the pain of blame. There's also the fame and disrepute spectrum that in our own way, within our own families, within our own careers, within our own communities, we move along the spectrum of recognition and oblivion, if you will. And that has its joys and sorrows. Where is the middle for us? We are all going to experience all of these for the rest of our life. How can we hold them when these polar ends of the spectrum come to us? Through no fault of our own, I might add. It's just the way things are. Even the Buddha, uh, after his awakening and was teaching Monks, nuns, kings, queens, courtesans and the whole, the whole spectrum of people uh, in India at that time. Even he had to uh, experience praise, tremendous amount of praise, and heaps of blame and condemnation from all kinds of people. One, one, one of the rains retreat, when he was doing his uh, seclusion, a secluded uh, rains retreat, he happened to pick a village that was experiencing a drought. And even though the Buddha was often treated very royally, just uh, with lavish uh, places to stay and food and accommodations, uh, during this range retreat, he had to eat the equivalent of horse food for three months. And the other monk said, oh, yeah, but hey, this, they don't have much food here. and It's not very good even to begin with. You know, we should go to another town. And the Buddha said, yeah, and you know, we'd find something there to complain about too. So we just kind of bear with it. We just bear with this condition and see if we can bring the mind into balance with these un you know, this sense of not being treated very well. Buddha also had headaches and backaches. Just because we get you know, more balanced, more awakened, more wi- more wise, doesn't mean that we somehow leave the body. We don't have the body to deal with. We don't have other people to deal with. We don't have changing environmental conditions to deal with. We do. And the challenge is still to find this, um, this middle path. You know, life is a contact sport. We are contacting people, ideas, uh, things, uh, conditions, all the time, and especially our own mind. All the time which is and all of these conditions are pushing and pulling and trying their best to uh, knock us off balance we could say if we look at it that way the ordinary perspective of men and women in facing these this onslaught of uh, sensual contact with people ideas in our own mind is to um, is to see it as very uh, adversarial sometimes, competitive at least, uh, sometimes a hassle, tiring, and falling into often a uh, us and them mentality, where we're trying to experience more pleasant, more fame, more renown, more gain, and try to avoid as much loss and blame and uh, disrepute as we can. even when it's not possible to avoid. The dharmic perspective, on the other hand, would say, you know what, liberation is possible. Avoiding these conditions, not possible. Can I find a way to keep the mind free when facing any of these eight worldly conditions? That's the challenge. Can liberation of the mind be the goal with balance of mind being the strategy. That's our task, that's our practice. Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda, two great spiritual teachers of the 20th century. He said that the ordinary person, the ordinary man or woman, views life's experiences as either blessings or curses. But the spiritual warrior sees life's experiences, all of life's experiences, as an opportunity for gaining power and knowledge. And rather than seeing our experiences, oh, this is good, this is bad, this is a blessing, this is a curse, to train our mind to see this is an opportunity to grow, this is an opportunity to come to know ourselves, this is an opportunity to disentangle the mind from its habitual conditioning of wanting, not wanting, reaching, pushing. And find that place in the middle, find that place of balance. One of our colleagues, after um, many years of practice uh, in the Zen tradition, uh, was finally uh, recognized by his uh, master, his, his uh, Zen master, teacher, uh, to have uh, something to offer to others and invited him or asked him to lead one of the monthly uh, sashins, a little uh, practice session, like a, like a retreat like this. And so, uh, feeling pretty uh, exalted with that invitation, uh, our, our, our friend uh, went to uh, the sashin And on opening night, went in to give uh, the opening talk. Nobody had showed up for the retreat. Ooh, that's hard. I know. (laughs) That's hard. Nevertheless, when he said to his teacher, hey, well, there's nobody here. What do I have to do? His teacher made him sit there and give that talk to the empty room. As a way of... uh, Putting into practice what he'd already learned, you know, that whatever you get excited about, don't get too excited. Whatever you get deflated about, don't get too depressed. Find that place in the middle that can hold both. They say, yeah, great, here's this invitation, this opportunity, and great, well, well, nobody showed up. Well, I can still give the talk. It's in here. It's in our heart. This is where the mind is free or not. It's not in how many people show up for your retreat. It's not in how uh, exalted or inflated you feel with the praise that's heaped on you. It's how balanced the mind is in relation to whatever's going on. Whatever's going on in the body, whatever's going on in your mind, whatever's going on in your relationships, whatever's going on in your environment. Can we keep a balanced mind? mind, And can we respond out of wisdom, out of compassion, rather than get caught in some habitual reaction that is uh, just deeply conditioned reactivity? So as we move into our practice and we learn more how to practice, we'll be talking about the balanced mind, equanimity, striking a balance, finding that place between the extremes in many different ways. One way is, of course, just the uh, living according to the precepts, living a balanced way of life with um, the sila, the, the precepts, as a way of keeping us from being too entangled. Here on retreat, pretty easy to do. But in our life, sometimes it's a challenge. Equanimity is also, yeah, please come in. Equanimity is also what's called a divine abiding. It's a place in the heart when developed that is very heaven like. It's a very divine place where the mind feels really quite uh, ennobled, quite elevated, not just inflated, but elevated, and uh, kind of above the mud but still tethered to earth, an exalted state of mind, really. Equanimity is also a very poised self-knowledge. It's a wisdom that allows us to see, oh, this is the way things are, whether it's what we want or not, pleasant or not, and to uh, accept the vicissitudes of life, the praise and blame, the pleasure, the pain, etc. It's said that when the mind of any of us is balanced in this way, it is similar to similar to the mind of a fully enlightened being that is like that all the time now ours may just be temporary we may have a few minutes in the sitting or you know an hour or two at the end of the retreat where we really feel chilled and present imagine a lifetime of that where that was your default setting if you will rather than reactivity which <coughs> Is all too familiar. What we're doing in practice is cultivating the equanimity so that it becomes a default setting, or more of a default setting, or it's more accessible as a reset setting in our mind. We do this because equanimity, or we say Tatramajitata. In in the Burmi, in the Buddhist psychology, it's called Tatra Majitata, the place in the middle where the mind is not in, uh, in in any extreme is a is a state of mind, it's a quality of mind that is present in every moment of awareness. Just like love is a quality of mind that you can cultivate through practice or anger is a quality of mind you can cultivate through practice if you want to or compassion is a quality of mind you can cultivate, so is equanimity a quality of mind that you can cultivate. If we cultivate it It will be there for us when we need it to do the work of not reacting. It is said that when we reflect on the law of karma, the law of cause and effect, the law of karma that kind of governs, doesn't control, but it governs the (coughs) unfolding of events in our life, in the mind, when we reflect on the law of karma, it gives rise to equanimity in the mind. You know, we've all done everything, a lot. We should expect everything, a lot. We shouldn't be surprised by anything, ever. Oh, that's the law of karma in brief. Oh, (laughs) got it, okay. Just thinking about that helps the mind kind of come off of its pedestal or could c- lift itself out of the mud. You know what? Okay. Equanimity is also the force or the factor of mind that brings the mind into balance, that brings the, facult- the spiritual faculties into balance. You know, the five spiritual faculties of concentration or tranquility and energy often get out of balance. Equanimity is what brings them into balance. Or the faculty of faith and wisdom. Too much faith? Do silly things. No wisdom. Too much book knowledge? Don't have enough faith to actually practice. Bringing and keeping faith and our wisdom in balance? This is the task of equanimity. It's equanimity that balances these spiritual faculties. It's also the that maybe we should say, the crown jewel of the seven factors of awakening, three energizing factors of energy, investigation, and joy, and the three tranquilizing factors of calm, concentration, and equanimity, really come into balance. The energizing and the tranquility come into balance when equanimity is aroused through the continuity of awareness, the seventh factor. Equanimity is just essential in our life, outside of retreat, in practice, in retreat. It is both the vehicle of our practice, it is the result of our practice. It's that place of non-reactivity. Several years ago now, I used to say a couple years ago because it was before, But now it's several. (laughs) And I'm reminded because I was just at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center on on the West Coast just north of Portland. We were just there doing a retreat. And several years ago, we showed up for a nine-day retreat on Friday night. We all settled in, just like we're settling in here. And we had all day Saturday to practice in silence. We had all day Sunday to practice in silence. Monday morning at 6 o'clock on the property next door, which was 50 feet behind the meditation hall, the owner had decided to clear-cut his 25 acres of land. And it wasn't done with chainsaws, it was done with big machines that drive up to a tree, grab the tree up at 20 feet, cut it off at the bottom with a pair of big scissors, turn it around and feed it through a chipper (laughs) that blows it into a truck from 6 in the morning till 3.30 every afternoon, Monday to Friday for the next two weeks while we were going to be doing a silent meditation retreat. This is not what anybody had in mind for their annual retreat in the stillness of the forest. There was one lawyer sitting right there where Gary's sitting who was uh, a land use lawyer. He spent the whole first day drafting a cease and desist order that he insisted. (laughs) He had to deliver to the nearby judge. We talked him out of it. Sitting right there was a woman who had just gotten out of jail for having chained herself to an old growth tree (laughs) and been arrested for that. The rest of us were just kind of somewhere in the middle, just kind of like. (laughs) Well, you can only imagine. Uh, This is what, this is the way it is or that was the way it was. Amazingly, I mean, we did did the obvious things. We changed the schedule. We moved the meditation hall. We went to sit in the dining room, which is a little further away. But I mean, when you've got machines like that, (laughs) further away is about two miles, you know. But nevertheless, just another 100 feet away. It was a little bit quieter. We got up earlier. We did the Dharma talk during the the noisy time. As soon as they went away, it was silence from then on, 3 o'clock on in the afternoon, 3.30 on in the afternoon. We changed the schedule. We changed people's expectations a lot. Nobody left that retreat early. No one left that retreat early. And a lot of them still believe it was the best retreat they ever did. <laughs> Why? Because they learn so much about themselves. They learn so much about their reactivity and how you can be with your reactivity not pleasant but develop tremendous equanimity. What do you expect this week? What do you hope your practice will be like? What do you fear or hope to avoid in your practice this week? Expectations, anticipations, hopes, they're just a setup for reactivity. They're just a setup. If you hold on to them, you're sure to get caught, sure to react. And as you know, practice is about being open to and being willing to connect with whatever happens. Whatever this moment brings, pleasant or unpleasant, whether it fulfills your expectations or whether it fulfills your worst fear. It's an opportunity to grow in knowledge, in understanding, in strength of mind, in equanimity. When we can withstand the extremes of conditions. We develop a stamina, a resilience, a lightness of mind that is not jerked around, that is not overwhelmed by the extremes of condition. But we develop a steadiness of mind, a strength of mind, a resilience of mind that can endure what we come to know to always be passing, fleeting, experiences, no matter how bad it is, no matter how good it is, it doesn't last very long. To be undermined, to be overwhelmed by, you know, some criticism or some uh, disappointment or, you know, somebody uh, kind of giving you a hard time is as equally unrealistic and unreasonable as to be elated by the results of a single election. It doesn't last very long. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't participate, that we shouldn't engage, we shouldn't stay in touch. Yes, we should, but keep an eye on the mind that gets inflated, elated, gets depressed, oppressed. See if you can find the way back to the middle when you find the mind heading towards one of the extremes. The mind is like space, Achan Smedo says. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. The mind is empty, like space. So let's just sit for a few moments and let these words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.